Let us pray. Eternal Father, who has spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past, but in these last days in your Son, the incarnate Word, we pray that you would open your mouth of your servant to proclaim that Word in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers here assembled to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All this, gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may now take your seats. Our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of Hosea, chapter 6. And I'd like to invite you to turn there. It's that prophetic book right after Daniel and just before Joel. And it's in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to verse 11 um, that we'll be reading, but actually um, up to the first half of verse 11. And so if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you. It's been a privilege to go through a very slow series uh, through Hosea once a month um, in between our Proverbs series. And perhaps revisiting this prophetic book reminds us that if we're ever tempted to downplay the seriousness of sin and God's holy wrath against sin, we must continue to heed the warnings in Hosea and, and seek the Lord's mercy in Christ Jesus. And so people of God hear now God's holy word from Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that, he, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. As we consider chapter 6, we enter a dark time in Israel's history in the northern side of the kingdom. Because if you remember in chapters 1 to 3, we saw the analogy of Israel's unfaithfulness through the broken marriage of the prophet Hosea, right? When Gomer, the wife that the Lord commanded Hosea to marry, 
lived the life of infidelity. She lived the life of whoredom going after her lovers. And just when we think she could ever change and be loved again, after the damage she's done to the marriage, Hosea does the impossible, right? By loving her even when there's nothing in her to love. And by buying her back with everything to lose. Because in the same way when there was nothing in us to love, the Savior who redeems the Gomers like us were bought not with silver or gold, but by the precious blood of God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And so to keep that picture of redemption in mind, it is, is vital for us in understanding the tension presented to us throughout the rest of the book. Because on the one hand, we have a holy God who cannot leave Israel's sin unpunished. And then on the other hand, we have the same God who keeps his covenant promise to save and to renew despite her unfaithfulness, despite her lack of love and desire to know God. In which the Lord says in verse 6 of our passage, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Right? The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so as the Lord pronounces this long list of, of charges upon charges through the prophet that we saw already from chapters 4 and 5 and then again in our passage In chapter 6, it's meant for his people to see what they've been blind to see, right? And to hear what they've been deaf to hear. And why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. And who else can accurately expose the sickness of our hearts, right? But God alone, isn't it? He sees what no one else sees. And he alone exposes by his law the true condition of our hearts. The things that we've turned into idols and the things that we've failed to do that's required of us. And perhaps we question if it's even necessary to sit through Israel's court hearing, to hear line after line the charges against her. And the judgment that awaits her if she continues in her rebellion. And why? Because in our case, if we don't see the the magnitude of our own sin against the holy God, we will never realize how desperate our souls are. How desperate our souls are in need of his renewal. And if we choose our own path apart from the saving grace of God, what do we deserve but eternal punishment? The holy wrath of God. And even though the world continues to normalize sin in in so many ways, we can be tempted to follow its ways. We can be tempted to deny the truths of Scripture. But the Lord does not and will not allow sin to go unpunished. It's all the more reason, beloved, that we should take heed of the warnings in prophetic books like Hosea time and again to warn us of the seriousness of sin and to seek the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. For it's in Him who delivers us from death to life. And so as we continue to immerse ourselves in the midst of Israel's charges and judgments in in Hosea chapter 6, 
what's significant about this section compared to the previous section is that now he extends a call, a call to repent with the anticipation of resurrection life. And so we can understand this passage in this way, that since God's people find renewal through the resurrection of Christ, we can now desire what He desires, to live in the steadfast love and true knowledge of God. Since God's people find renewal through the resurrection of Christ, we can now desire what He desires, to live in the steadfast love and true knowledge of Christ. And how do we unpack that truth in our passage? Well, it's helpful as we consider it in three ways. First, the call for restoration, the despair of rebellion, and finally, the desire for inward renewal. Right? The call for restoration, the despair of rebellion, and finally, the desire for inward renewal. And first, the call for restoration. And we see that in verse 1. We see the call extended to Israel. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us. He has struck us down, or He has injured us. Now, there's debate as to who is speaking here, right? Is it Israel? Is it Israel who now realize their need to return to the Lord? Or is it Hosea speaking here, calling upon his fellow Israelites to return to the Lord? Well, it seems that only Hosea is really speaking here, calling upon them, rather than the collective voice of Israel, because Israel proves to remain unresponsive to this call. Because in just a few verses later, in verses 4 and onward, the Lord says, What shall I do with my people, Ephraim and Judah? What shall I do with you? Your love is like the dew that disappears so quickly. You remain a faithless people. And so Hosea is pleading with his, with his Israelite brethren to repent, to return to the Lord, especially after the Lord's discipline. Because what is the Lord's discipline meant to do for us? Right? It's meant for us to realize our offense against the Lord, to receive correction where there is wrong. And here, discipline is, is not the wrath of God, but rather it's an act of God's love. The Lord tells His people in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 8, 5, Know that in your heart, that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And so even though Israel was under that national covenant where God could have executed His divine curse by eliminating them off the face of the earth, the Lord does what? The Lord shows us, right, time and again that He is slow to anger and He is abounding in steadfast love. And so often, the Lord often delays His ultimate wrath by way of His loving discipline. And sometimes, you know, it, it's hard for us to think about what loving discipline looks like. Because as parents, our, mo our motives when we discipline our children aren't always right, aren't all, are, are tend to be mixed sometimes. We don't perfectly love the way the Lord loves. And when disciplining a child, yet with the Lord, His discipline is holy. 
And beloved, we can trust that when he disciplines, he is perfect in all his ways. That's why the writer of Hebrews encourages that though discipline is painful for a moment, it's for our good. And why? Because later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, Hebrews 12, 11. And it's here in Israel's context that we know why the Lord is disciplining them because of their unfaithfulness. For there is no loyalty, there is no knowledge of God, but only lawlessness that has defiled the land. And not only is discipline meant to expose their offenses, but what else? But for his people to acknowledge their guilt before God. To have a true sense of sorrow and repentance. A desire to mortify sin and to, to cut off the sin that so easily entangles. And it's not the kind of false sorrow or remorse because you've been caught. Right? Or sorrow because sorrow you can no longer commit the act. But no. It's, it's a genuine sorrow for sin. It's a genuine turning away from sin. And that's what true repentance looks like, beloved. And it's precisely the grace of being torn and broken in the heart that the Lord is working in His people to seek Him. In the previous verse, verse 15 of chapter 5, it's the Lord's will that when His people will acknowledge their guilt... They aren't to stay in their guilt, but to what? To seek his face, right? To return to him and to seek him. And why? So that he may heal us, so that he may bind us up. And yet there's more that the prophet reveals in this, prof in this process of restoration. He says in verse 2, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And so what do we see here, right? Well, we see that God will revive his people and raise them up to new life on the third day. And yet, why is the time period of two days and then the third day introduced? Well, some scholars see this as a poetic way of saying that after God's people have been sick, the Lord will not delay nor prolong their state of illness, right? He will not prolong their sickness, but just after two days, He will revive them. He will resurrect them on the third day. Yet how can this be interpreted for God's people in Israel's history, right? Is it the revival of national Israel? Is it the restoration of the land that they lost? No. It's much better than that because the promise of revival look forward to a better restoration, which is the promise of the resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that's what sinners need, isn't it? And so it extends beyond national Israel to all people because it's based upon that gracious covenant promise, isn't it? That I will be your God and you will be my people from every tongue, nation, and tribe. And the only way that you will be my people is through the promised seed. 
the true Israelite, the righteous one who gave his life, he was the one that was torn. He was the one that was struck down so that by his death and resurrection on the third day, you and I can have resurrection life. And even, even the Apostle Paul saw this fulfillment in Christ, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4. And so, beloved, Paul discerned that fulfillment on Hosea, right? That promise of resurrection, hope in Christ. And since he has risen, the Lord calls sinners today to repent, to seek his mercy, to seek his righteousness and forgiveness that in Christ we too may have resurrection life, that we too can live before Him. And yet in verse 3, we see another aspect of restoration. We see Hosea's call to press on to know the Lord. And why? Because seeking to know the Lord is a mark of every believer. It's a mark of every believer whose heart and mind and will is renewed because now they seek the Lord to know Him with the assurance of His faithfulness. And it's wonderful how he communicates this poetically uh, using the imagery of nature in which we read there in verse 3, Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers as the spring rains that water the earth. In other words, his faithfulness to respond is sure. That just as surely as sunlight appeared this morning at sunrise, so surely is his faithfulness toward us. And just as surely as the rain comes to shower the earth, so surely is our hope that he comes to us and secures our deliverance. Beloved, Jesus promised, all that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out, John 6, 37. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish, John 10, 28. And so that's our assurance, beloved, that we are His and that He is faithful through His Son, Jesus Christ. And for those who have yet to respond to God's call for repentance, right now is the time. Right now is the time, right now is the day of salvation to turn to the Lord and find eternal life in Him. And yet, how does Israel respond to the invitation to return to the Lord? How do they respond to the offer of restoration? Well, tragically, the call falls on deaf ear, doesn't it? Right? The heart remains hardened. The eyes remain blind because the Lord says in the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. And because of that, the impending judgment is not only for Israel in the north, but also Judah in the south. For the Lord says in verse 11, for you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. And a harvest is it's not in the positive sense, but in the negative sense of harvesting destruction. And so we turn to see the second truth, which is the despair of rebellion, which we see unfold in verses 4 and following. 
We see in verse 4, the Lord's lament. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud or a morning mist, like the dew that goes early away. And so you see the Lord was lamenting that Israel in the north and Judah's love in the south was short-lived. It's not the love in the sense of their lack of affection, but it's the love in which their covenant loyalty was short-lived. In the same way that when the morning dew is hit by the sunlight, the dew quickly dries up and is also short-lived. And so the more they accommodated to sin in their lives, the more their loyalty quickly disappeared until their love became non-existent. And so what does the Lord typically do when Israel violates the covenant relationship? He calls upon his prophets, right? He calls upon Hosea in verse 5, which they are like covenant prosecutors to press upon the people his words of judgment. We see in verse 5, therefore I have hewn, or another way to translate, I have cut them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. And so we see that the Lord, by the light of his judgment, exposes their hypocrisy in verse 6. We see there that even though they attempt to offer their sacrifices and burnt offering, how does the Lord respond? How does he respond? He rejects them. He says, I desire steadfast love in the knowledge of God rather than sacrifices and burnt offerings. Because God's desire for the heart is to be right and to have the true knowledge of who he is, that who he is and um, how he's revealed himself through his word. That is more important. That is more important than the outward form of worship in which even though you look like you're worshiping me from the outside, I see that in the inside your heart and your love is far from me. You love the idols of your heart more than me. In the same way, beloved, in Genesis 4, when Cain's offering wasn't accepted, it wasn't so much that he gave the wrong offering, but more importantly, how the Lord saw the condition of Cain's heart. Remember? The Lord exposed his heart asking, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do better, will you not be accepted? Right? What did Cain do? He gave in to his pride and his anger, which, which led to the murder of his brother. And so in the same way, beloved, we need to regularly examine our hearts. We have to ask ourselves, where is your heart this morning? Where is your heart? Are there desires in your heart that have been more important than the steadfast love and the true knowledge of God? And so we see even from the beginning, the heart of the matter is the heart, isn't it? And it's not that there was anything invalid in the sacrifices or the temple during national Israel, right? Because after all, the Lord himself instituted these for the worship of Israel, But what Israel missed in their discernment of these things, the ritual sacrifices, the priesthood, or the temple, was that through them, 
right, which were only the types and shadows, was that it was meant to point them to the ultimate Savior. It was meant to point them to the ultimate Lamb who was to be slain so that He alone could transform their hearts. But sadly, their hearts could not see it. And not only does the Lord see their hypocrisy, see the hypocrisy of His people, He also sees the hatred of His people toward each other. We see there in verse 8, He reveals, Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. And now commentators seem to suggest that this could be alluding to the assassination of one of the northern kings in Second Kings chapter 15, verse 22, right? And this was when King Pekahiah became king of Israel, but when his captain named Pekah, he, he conspired against him, right? We read the captain goes to the city of Gilead and he rounds up 50 men from Gilead and kills King Pekahiah so that now the captain can be king of Israel. Notice how hatred for God led to a hatred of neighbor, right? Because when the love of God is not there, right, it affects how you love your neighbor. Because you can't truly love neighbor without first having the love of God. And that's the tragedy we see in Israel's history, that they didn't have the love of God. They didn't have the steadfast love and knowledge of God, which led to all kinds of sin against each other. We, see, we also see the Lord brings up the priest in verse 9. As robbers lie and wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Now here we don't have references in Scripture if there were actual uh, priests that banded together and, and killed people. Uh, but it could be a poetic way to say that the people as a whole committed great atrocities to one another. And the priests who were supposed to regulate the religious life, the moral life of the people, really didn't care if the people were committing crimes against each other. And so in the midst of bringing up all these charges, we see that the Lord brings to their mind a final thought here, an important, an important figure from Genesis. He says in verse 7, but like Adam, they transgress the covenant. But like Adam, they transgress the covenant. And so what, what is this covenant? Well, it's the covenant which Reformed theologians call the covenant of works or the covenant of life, right? It's that covenant relationship that the Lord established in the garden between God and man that if Adam were to obey God perfectly, he would earn eternal life. He would earn eternal life with his future generation. But the tragedy is since Adam as the head of humanity has failed, he did not earn eternal life. But he earned what? The curse of death. He earned it for himself and for all of us. And so the Lord is revealing to Israel and to us that just like your father, Adam, you too have transgressed the covenant. 
you are like Adam. Because essentially the command given at the garden and the command given to Israel, Mount Sinai, is what? Do this and live. Right? Do this and live. But if you fail, you will die and you will not live. And so it raises the question, who could perfectly do this and live? Who could do what the Lord perfectly requires in His law? Who could truly live in steadfast love and the true knowledge of God? Well, this leads us finally to consider a last truth, which is the desire for inward renewal. The desire for inward renewal. And before we could ever desire that inward renewal of steadfast love and true knowledge, it first begins with the Lord's desire to work in us what we could never produce in ourselves, right? Because in in and of ourselves, there's nothing inherently good in us to produce such a desire to love God and to know Him and to love our neighbor. We know from the Apostle Paul that no one among the fallen human race is by nature righteous. He says, no one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, no, not one, Romans 3.10. And yet, if the Lord desires from his people steadfast love and the knowledge of God, who can earn for us that blessing, right? Who can earn for us if that first Adam could not accomplish it? Well, it's none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Right? He is the last Adam whom Paul describes as the God-man that came from heaven to be our life-giving spirit. Because through the first Adam, we read in Paul's, in Paul's letter in Romans chapter 5, that through him, sin and death came into the world, and through his disobedience, the many were made sinners. See that, beloved? But yet the good news, beloved, is that in the fullness of time, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, came. He came to do what the first Adam failed to do, right? He came what the first Adam failed to do, to be our new head, to be our mediator, to to be our mediator of a new and better covenant so that by his perfect obedience through his life, death, and resurrection, he earns for us perfect righteousness. He earns for us perfect righteousness by faith alone. So that now being united to Christ by His Spirit, all the benefits of Christ are ours. All the blessings of renewal are ours. And so in closing, beloved, may we be encouraged that we who are united to Christ have the assurance that He works in us, right? He works in us now that growing steadfast love for him in that growing zeal to know God and to make him to make him known for his glory alone and that may we have that confidence that he will keep us secure until the end of the age for his promise in Christ are yes and amen amen let us pray i'll be using the prayer once again of john calvin oh grant almighty god that we being renewed by your spirit, may not only remain constant in the fear of your name, but also advance more and more and be established that being armed with your invincible power, we may strenuously fight against all the deceits and assaults of Satan.
and thus pursue our welfare to the end. And that being sustained by your mercy, we may never aspire, that we may ever aspire to that life which is hid for us in heaven through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so I'd like to ask Isaiah if you could stand. And I will be reading uh, the form from page 16. And I'll be asking the four questions, right? And then after the four questions, I will ask you what your answer is, okay? You are now requested to answer the following questions for the public profession of faith. Do you wholeheartedly believe the doctrine contained in the Old and the New Testament and in the articles of the Christian faith and taught in this Christian church to be the true and complete doctrine of salvation? And do you promise by the grace of God to continue steadfastly in this profession? Do you openly accept God's covenant promise, which has been signified and sealed to you in your baptism? And do you confess that you despise and humble yourself before God because of your sins, and that you seek your life not in yourself, but only in Jesus Christ, your Savior? Do you declare that you love the Lord and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve Him according to His word, to forsake the world, to put to death your old nature, and to lead a godly life? And do you promise to submit to the government of the church, and also, if you should become wayward, either in doctrine or in life, to submit to its admonition and discipline? Isaiah, what is your answer? Good. All right. And so I charge you, Then Isaiah, by the diligent use of the means of grace and with the assistance of your God to continue in the profession that you have just made. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, I now welcome you to full communion with the people of God. Rest assured that all the privileges of such communion are now yours. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, 11 says, And after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Congratulations. It's a gift from the church. And then after the benediction, Isaiah, if you could please come to the front, right? And then so then we can allow brothers and sisters to congratulate you. And so let's turn now in God in prayer and thanking him for Isaiah's public profession. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have embraced Isaiah in your covenant together with his parents. We thank you that you have included him, your servant, in the Christian church And granted him all the many blessings of the covenant community. We praise you that you added the special grace of your Holy Spirit. So that of his own will, he came here today to profess your truth. 
and to consecrate his life to your service. We earnestly pray that you will continue to carry on the good work that you have begun in him until the day of complete redemption. Father, increase in him daily the many gifts of your grace, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Grant him the happiness of promoting the glory of his Lord and the edification of God's people. Deliver him in the temptations of this life, in the final trial of death. And in that day when you make up your jewels, set also him, your servant, in your crown, that he may shine as a star to your praise forever and ever. Amen. And so again, after the benediction of if Isaiah, you could come forward so that we could greet you and welcome you. And so before that, our song of response is found in uh, number 138B, With Grateful Heart, My Thanks I Bring, 138B. Please stand. People of God, receive now his parting blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.
people of God, go in peace.